Thank you for Jesus, for grace and mercy, and even for the gift of prayer. God, I admit I don't understand it, and sometimes it frustrates me. But you call us to it. And so strengthen us to walk in obedience to that calling, to, to seek you in prayer. And I pray that you would reveal to us the meaning of it. And God, I pray this morning that you would speak to each one of us here, that we all come in in different places in our lives and in our journey of faith, but you know exactly where we are. So I pray that you'd speak to us through your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, John chapter 11, we'll start in verse 35. Verse 35 reads this, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So we've been, we've been kind of in this story of the death of Lazarus and, and his uh, being risen, raised from the dead. And Jesus, we, we've been kind of wrestling with, with uh, the story of him weeping and for a couple weeks now. And we see here that, that the people who are witnessing his, his crying, they have completely misread what's going on. They have no real idea why Jesus is weeping. He is grieving outwardly, and people have noticed it. But they're missing the point. They say, look, look how he loved him. But they have no idea what's going on. They have no idea that Jesus is actually grieving for them. Because he sees them and he sees them mourning and they mourn like they don't have any hope. And, and if they mourn like there is no hope, then there is a good possibility that they live like there is no hope. And they say, you know, you know, he opened the eyes of a blind man. I mean, obviously he could have done something for this guy. See, and, and it's not some sarcastic statement that they're making. It's just an open and honest question, an open and honest statement. They recognize, as the sisters did, Martha and Mary, they recognize Jesus is different. He's different from all the other teachers that have come before him. He's, he has this power. He, he does stuff. And they, and they all recognize that. But yet they still don't fully understand who he is. They don't fully understand what he is bringing them. And you know, we, we kind of wrestled with over a few weeks that their story is our story. And our story is their story. Because we, Jesus follows, we, we know who Jesus is. We recognize Jesus. We recognize that, that he has power to do stuff. But so often in our lives, we miss the big picture. We miss who he really is. And I would say even more important, we miss who we are as children of God, as followers of Christ. And so Christian 2010, maybe we should have a t-shirt, Christianity 2010, what we know and what we believe sometimes are two very different things. And so let's continue on in the story. Verse 38. Jesus once more, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. 
Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus finally gets to the tomb. And when he gets there, he is deeply moved once again. It's the same idea as in verse 33 where, where he's just, it's just like, a, oh, and he, and he sees what's going on. And he sees the tomb. And he sees the people crowded around the tomb. And there's something going on inside him. And he tells them, take away the stone." And this is, this is the writer, John. He wants us to understand the severity of this situation. There is no doubt, let there be no doubt, that Lazarus is dead. Take away the stone would be like in our modern day experience that if you went to a cemetery and you were seeing the, the grave of somebody and you would say, dig up his grave. It's the same thing. He wants, to know, wants us to understand the severity of this. Lazarus is dead. And even Martha's saying, man, he's, he's been in the grave four days. That's not just a reference to time, but it's a reference to the permanence of the situation. Remember, remember a few weeks ago, I don't know, four weeks ago, we talked about the idea that the ancients believed that when a body dies, the soul hangs around the body for almost three days. It wants to be reunited with the body. It wants to come back to life. And so it, and so it hangs around. But after three days, the body starts to decompose and the soul can no longer recognize the body's face. And so it moves on. See, John wants us to understand that this is, this is a hopeless situation in, in the eyes of the, the tradition, in the eyes of the culture, in the eyes of humanity. But what Jesus will do is divinely intervene. He will display the power of God. He will display the power that God has given to him for the situation. And then he addresses Martha's statement. I mean, she still has no idea what's about to happen. There they are standing at the tomb of her brother. She has no idea. She must be wondering, why in the world does he want to move away the stone? She says, Jesus, you know, he's, he's been in there four days. I mean, it's, there's going to be a bad odor. Embalming practices weren't too popular in the first century. There's going to be a bad... And, 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 and she's just kind of scratching her head. But Jesus will, will firmly reject her idea. He will firmly reject her statement. And he will, remind, he will remind her of what he said. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, there's a big problem with that statement right there. Because as John has recorded it, those words have yet to been said to Martha in this story. He has not told her that. In verse 4, when he, and when he first finds out that, that Lazarus is sick, he tells the disciples, well, don't worry about it, man. This is for God's glory. And so he hasn't said this to her, but yet he tells her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, I don't know. Nobody really knows what the backstory of this is. Maybe, maybe he told her that and John hasn't recorded it. Or maybe, maybe the disciples told her about the conversation they had four, four days ago. Or maybe, maybe John has kind of changed things up a little bit which is very common in, in the way he writes, whatever it is, whatever the point is, Jesus is challenging faith. Jesus is challenging belief. He's about to do some very, he's about to do a very amazing thing. To raise somebody from the dead, that's no joke miracle right there, okay? That's, that's big time. You can't fake that. And in fact, he is going to display 
Amazing power. He's going to speak to a dead man. And he will come forth from the grave. And in that process, he is giving the sisters a a precious gift, the life of their brother. He is giving it back to them. But notice he doesn't say anything about that. For Jesus, the most important thing, the, the thing that needs to be focused on, is the glory of God is the glory of God. This is, this is important because there's a lot of people that are going to see this go down. But not everyone will perceive God's glory. And so for me, and the way my mind kind of works, it begs the question, what is the glory of God? Why is, it, why is it so important to Jesus? I mean, God's glory is central to this whole chapter 11. He gets the message, the one you love. Is sick. First thing Jesus says, the sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the Son may be glorified. The glory of it is just sensual to what Jesus is, is, is trying to get across here. And then he tells Martha, if you believe, Martha, if you believe, I told you, you were going to see God's glory. And so, what's going on? I mean, maybe you're asking yourself, is Jesus fulfilling something? Well, that is a great question, and I would like to help you answer that. I'm so glad you're so inquisitive. But in order for us to answer the glory of God question and what it is, we have to kind of do an Old Testament survey. We have to look back into the Old Testament to see what the prophets, what the Psalms say about the glory of God. The, God's glory, it's, it's, it, sometimes it can be just so simple, but yet so just deep and confusing. Now, the first thing I want us to look at is Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah, in chapter 6, we, we find the prophet, he sees this vision. And he sees the throne. And he sees the Lord sitting on the throne. And the train of his robe fills the, the, the temple. And then he sees these six-winged critters kind of flying around. And, he, and these things are just yelling to him. They're yelling. They're calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he's witnessing this. And this is no simple or easy statement. It says the whole earth is full of the glory of God. Not some, not most, not a real lot or a high percentage. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. And it's not some future promise. This is a present truth, a lasting reality that they're saying the whole earth is full of God's glory. In Ezekiel 43, the prophet would write that the earth does shine with the glory of God. And you know, this whole idea of God's, we always talk about it in church. I mean, if you notice, like a lot of the songs this morning, I did that on purpose, ha, ha, ha. A lot of the songs this morning reflected or we sang about God's glory. I mean, we throw it around all the time like we actually know what it is, like we can describe it. We say we give it back to God. We say, God, show us your glory. But do we, do we, really, do we really know? We give glory to God. God, we give you the glory like we need to give God you know, you know, I mean, do we understand? Now, now look what it says in Psalm 104. I'm sorry, Psalm 19. Psalm 104 is later, don't worry. Psalm 19 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. 
Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. The heavens speak of the glory of God, but they don't use words. There is no speech that goes out from them. So is the glory of God, is it intangible? Can it be expressed in words? If the heavens can't even use words or use speech, but yet they do use words, okay, I'm confused now. And sometimes we just take this idea of God's glory for granted, like we had it all figured out. Is it, is it tangible? I mean, can we, can we touch it, or feel it, or see it? In, in uh, Exodus, sometimes the glory of God is, is described as a cloud would come down or an all-consuming fire. I mean, those are pretty tangible things. I can get my head around clouds and fire, though I don't want to be consumed by any fire anytime soon, but, but I can understand a, a consuming fire. I mean, these would, be, these would seem to be descriptions of, of an external manifestation of the glory of God, of, of something very powerful. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Because he is about to display an amazing power as he brings this man from the grave. But Jesus, he, he adds an interesting caveat here. He says, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. If, if you believe. See, there's a lot of people that are mourning with Martha and Mary. And they will all see Lazarus come from the grave. But not all of them will perceive the glory of God. In fact, some will run and tell the religious leaders, you know, you better, you better reel this guy in. He is showing you up big time. Because they, for some reason don't believe. And so storms and lightning and fire and clouds and the, rise, the raising of a man from the dead, these things, these things provide the setting for the glory of God, but they're not God's glory. And so, and so we have to press into this more. We have to press, we have to press on. We have to, we have to ask more questions. Okay, can the glory of God be his very essence, his, his very existence, Is that God's glory? And this is where Psalm 104 says this. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. The writer says, may God's glory not end. And if God's glory, wait, if God's glory is his very existence, then to say may God's existence never end, like somehow possibly it could end, well, I'll be straight up with you. That's just bad theology. God cannot end. He is going to be the same forever, and he has been the same forever. He has no beginning, and he's going to have no end. And so if he's talking about God's glory being the essence or the existence of God, we've got some bad theology in the Bible, and I don't want to cross that line. So I'm going to say that's not the glory of God is. And so what? I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but this is what goes on in my mind during the course of the week. You know, you get 30 minutes, I get 15 hours of, as Sandy, I go for my walks. So I can just kind of, okay, what, what is this? You know, there's an interesting story in Exodus, and it's Exodus uh, 33, and it's Moses. And see, I believe Moses is on the right track. Moses is almost anxious in his desire to experience the glory of God. And in Exodus 33, God says, all right, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to... I want you to take these people that you've led out of Egypt. I want you to lead them to the promised land, the land that I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to go there. And then God says this. He goes, 
but I'm not going with you. You see, those people that you're leading, they're a stiff-necked bunch, and I just might get really aggravated with them along the way and just kill them all. So I'm just going to kind of hang back, and, and you take them. Now, I'm not even going to charge you for this little advice, so, so this is a freebie. If God says that about you, that you're a stiff-necked person, and you should just kind of get stepping in the direction that I told you to, or else, and I'm not going with you because I might kill you, you've got issues, and you, need, and you really need to get those issues together because you should be afraid. If God says he's going to kill you if he spends any more time with you, you should be afraid. And that's a healthy fear. The fear of the Lord is profitable. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But just don't sit there because I would hate for us to have no church because you're all stiff-necked. And if you follow me, okay, that was free. I'm not going to charge you for that. So anyway, so, but Moses isn't afraid of God. He's like, okay, wait a minute. So, so, so let me get this straight. He says, you tell me to lead these people. And you say that you know my name, which is, which is a way of knowing, saying that, that God knows who Moses is, personally and intimately. And Moses, you, you say I have found favor in your eyes. Then if that's true, you teach me your ways. You teach me your ways. And remember, these stiff-necked people that you're talking about, you chose them. I didn't choose them. These are your people. And if you don't go with us, how are the other nations going to know that you are our God? And how are they going to know that we are your people? And I would imagine God would scratch his beard because he has a big white bushy one down here. And he, he would rub it for a minute and we'd go. And he said, you know, Moses, you're right. He goes... I'll do whatever you ask. So, I want to, I'm going to do a little experiment here, okay? For the next couple of weeks, I need six volunteers. Because Moses has got chutzpah. I mean, he's just like right in God's face. You said this. And you, I mean, we like to pray like, Heavenly Father, can you please this? And please, if, it, if it be your will, that. Moses is like, uh-uh, oh, wait, God. Mm-mm. He says, you promised this, this, and this. So I want some people not to pray all nice. I want people that, that are going to be in God's face, showing a little chutzpah. And then, you know, if you survive, come on back and tell us how that actually goes. I mean, I would do it myself, but I, if, if it goes bad, I don't want the church to be without a pastor. Then it gets all ugly and stuff like that. So if we don't see six of you here next week, we'll know that we'll go back to asking God nicely. So, so, so God says, all right, Moses, I'll... I'll do what, whatever you ask me to do. And this is what Moses asked God to do. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. Moses asked, God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will show you my goodness and I will show you my mercy and I will show you my compassion. Is the glory of God tied to mercy, compassion, and his goodness? Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to show you these things. 
But you can't look. You can't look directly at me or you're going to explode. There's going to be vain guts and gore and veins in people's teeth. It's just going to get ugly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in this rock. I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm going to walk by. And then I'll remove my hand and you can see my back. And a better translation in the Hebrew would be, you can see where I was. And so this is what God does. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Church, the glory of God is his very presence here on this earth. It's not, it's not his, his essence, but it's an act of God. It's not a quality. It's, it's process. The glory of God shows itself in power that can and does overwhelm the world. It demands, it demands respect and fear. It demands that we recognize the worth of his presence. The glory of the Lord. It's the power of his presence that descends and it guides us and it reminds us of who we are, how we're to walk. It reminds us of Christ, who he's given to us now. It's, it's the presence of God that has entered into history and has shown itself over and over and over again. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of the very presence of God. And you know, presence is a really tough thing for us to define in, in our humanity. You know, there, there's people that could be here and now, and, and their, their presence, it's just felt. They don't have to say anything or they have to be doing anything. You just, they, they just walk into a room and you just notice. And then there's some people that, that can walk into a room that, that they're here and now and nobody ever notices. But for some people, for some, that just who they are is communicated by just where they are. And somehow that, that communication is, is something about their inside, something that, indwell, that dwells inside them, some strength or some influence or even, or even a power. And we would say that these people... Without, without even saying or doing anything, these people, they just, they just have some presence about them. And so the whole earth is full of the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his presence. The world and everything that we see and everything that we experience, it communicates, it communicates the greatness and the power and the influence of God. And it seems to be able to do it without speaking a single word. Remember, remember the psalm. You put the psalm back up there, Wes. The next slide. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. There's, there's something that is communicating the very presence of God. You know, this goes beyond aesthetics. This goes beyond the physical. I know that we can look at a sunrise or a sunset, and so many people have just recognized the glory of the Lord, the presence of God in a sunset or a sunrise. My son and I, we collect monarch butterflies. And you, and you watch this this. 
tiny little caterpillar egg hatch and grow into this big, ugly, nasty, which is really cute anyway, and then climb and then turn into this amazing monarch butterfly. I mean, it goes, you know, the, the presence of God goes way beyond those things. The glory of the Lord is the brilliance, the brilliance of his living presence. And it's that living presence here and now and among us. Jesus tells Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of the Lord. If you believe, you will see the, this brilliance of his living presence among you. But, but in this story, many will see this miracle. But some will never perceive God's presence. They will not perceive that brilliance seeing who Jesus really is or the presence of God or the presence of the kingdom of God. And, and, it's, and it's, it's nothing new in Jesus' day. Isaiah spoke of it a long time before. He's, this is God speaking to Isaiah. He said, go and tell these people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and, and close their ears. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And this is a very confusing passage. Why would God want people's hearts to be hardened? Why wouldn't they want him to be healed? And what it comes down to is, as Isaiah speaks the truth of what God has told him, that doesn't necessarily make it easy for some people to, to repent and be healed. And just as Jesus' miracle is, is not going to make it easy for everyone to repent and be healed. Is there something more important than being healed by the grace of God? Is there something, something bigger than that for us in our lives? I would have to say yes. It is the pure revelation of the presence of God, period. That you would see God in everything and everywhere. The whole earth is full of his glory, but for many, they don't perceive it. It seems to be within everybody's grasp, but just out of some reach. And so, God's presence fills the earth. But the knowledge of that presence has yet to be completed. It is yet to be completely fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah would write, The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. In Habakkuk it says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. This is, this is a future thing that is happening. It's a prophetic word that Jesus is now fulfilling in the sight of many that the glory of God, the presence of God is here and now. And if you believe it, you're going to see it. You know, we just, I think we do injustice to God's presence and glory. And, 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 and how we try to describe it and the way we just throw it around. I mean, I mean, it's all, it's all we got. I mean, we try really hard. I don't think there's any, there's any um, bad intent. But man, we just, we just really don't have the words or the expressions or even, even the understanding to describe the presence of God. And even in our knowledge of that presence, Jesus Christ has been revealed to us. 
And we know that He is the incarnation, the presence of God here on earth. Even in that knowledge, we are limited and we, we fall short. There's one thing I want you to be very, very sure about when you leave here today. We may not have a full understanding of the glory of the Lord. We may not have a full understanding of His presence. But we are known fully by it. Psalm 139. You have searched, back one, Wes. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You've perceived my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my laying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where, I go, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Next slide. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. This, this, this passage out of the psalm should should bring reassurance to your soul that God knows you, but it should also make you just a wee bit nervous that God knows you that well. The glory You are known by the glory of the Lord, by the presence of God. There is nowhere you can run, and it doesn't matter if you believe that. God knows each one of us intimately and well. You know, it would seem, as I just kind of wrestle with my own life and, and wrestle with with this journey of faith, the glory of the Lord just can be this rare occurrence in our lives. It seems, it seems it's easy just to fail to wonder, to fail to respond, and ultimately to, really, to fail to really believe that his promises are true and who we are. One writer would, would write this, that the ultimate tragedy of humanity is that we dim all wonder by our indifference. And an ancient rabbi would write this, just as a small coin held over our face can block the sight of a mountain, so the vanities of living block out the sight of infinite light. The wonders of God are around us every day. The presence of the Lord fills this earth, but often even we who follow Jesus, we don't see it. Or should I say we don't perceive it. We don't recognize it. See, it's not a matter of physically seeing. We all can see the same things. The miracle that Jesus is about to do, many people will see, but few will perceive God's presence. In our culture, we, we put value to intellectual brilliance put value to the learn and education, which, which, which is good. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. But who cares if your eyes can see, but your heart is blind? What good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? 
God's word came to the prophet Ezekiel. And, and this, this is what it said. Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious people. Church, don't let those words be spoken over us. Don't let those words be spoken over us by the creator of all things, by our God. Believe in the Son of Man and the one who has sent him. Believe in his power and might. Believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Humble yourselves. Walk humbly before your God. Do not be rebellious. And I promise you, I promise you, you will perceive the glory of God as it fills the whole earth. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your presence. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Strip us of the rebellion in our hearts. Strengthen us to walk humbly before you. To call out to you, to reach out. To love you as we love our neighbor. God, as we leave this place this very morning, each one of us, I pray that we would have new eyes, that we would have new ears that can hear. And God, that we would have a heart that can see just a little bit more clearly. I pray these things in in the name of Jesus. Amen.